Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. day everybody I'm in great spirits and um, I hope y'all are too um, welcome everyone you know I don't know if we'll be able to keep the the actual iPhone translation uh, the video of it because we've got an AC in here I hope you guys are escaping the hot weather today um, we have just gone through a sermon series on Jonah, and, you know, I hope Jonah was good for y'all. I hope Jonah broke things for y'all. I hope Jonah changed things for everybody and helped us to see how God addresses our anger, help us, helps us to see how God addresses our loyalties other than to him, how God loves us even when we are stubborn. Today, I'll be preaching on another kind of... Uh, Another, another kind of messy uh, testimony of how God has been faithful and provident. I've never preached on a passage like this before, and I vacillated back and forth. Uh, but I think this summer in particular, I just want to be really transparent about where God I, is taking me as, as, as your preacher. I think he's taking me down, you know, the book, a couple books that are very unlikely. You might not have had a lot of sermon series preached on them, but... God is highlighting their stories and their faithfulness and their Christian witness um, as a diaspora people, uh, as, a, as a wandering people in an unfaithful world. So today we'll be going through a four-part sermon series, uh, the first part from the book of Esther. If you guys can open up your Bibles with me to Esther chapter 2. I believe Esther is before Job. Um, before the book of Job, after the book of Nehemiah. It's in the first part of the Old Testament. It's a couple books before Psalms and Proverbs, if that helps anybody. This, I wasn't, I wasn't sure about whether or not to make this sermon series two-part or three-part or four-part, but this sermon has really developed to be near and dear to my heart. So if I start crying, it's not only because I'm emotional from seeing faces that I love, but it is also because this, I think this sermon, whoa, means so much to me as an individual. So Esther chapter two, verse five, we're not together to read God's holy and perfect word, but I pray that right now of all the times that you could possibly be distracted, now is the time to pay attention God's holy and perfect word, so we don't stand together, but we hold it with all due reverence. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel whose name was Mordecai. Uh, let me read that actually better. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing him Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. 
The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagash, Shashgash, Shash, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of all the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we are so grateful for all that you are doing today. And we are so grateful for um, just who you are. We're so grateful, God, that you love us and that you are using us. God, I just pray that at this time, Lord, would you, would you guide your people? Would you take away shame? Would you take away brokenness? Father, Lord, would you take away distrust in you because of the ways that we, the situations that we were born into? Would you help us to see your love for us and how you claim us even when we don't know how to claim ourselves, even when we don't claim you, God? Lord, I pray that the story of Esther would give strength to the woman of our ministry. God, that you use them and that you love them and that you elevate them in a world that oppresses them. Lord, I pray for the men. I pray, God, that you would use them, Father, Lord, to be people that rise above, Father, our culture and the things that we are born into. 
Father God, that we would have men of bravery and honor in this room that learn to see your people for who they are, that learn to see themselves for who they are, for who you say they are, God. I pray for any shame on any man, Father, for any secret sin or any sexual sin, Father, to be lifted in the name of Jesus right now. And Lord, I pray for your grace to come over every head. Lord, that we would see that you love us and you claim us and you know us. So God, would you be with us? We give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, today's sermon title is called Esther's Favor. Esther's Favor. Another way to say it is Esther's Favor and her life. Esther's favor and her life. The main idea is God uses and claims not only the neat and tidy, but the confused, the broken, the messy. I'm gonna say that one more time. God uses, claims, and loves not only the neat and tidy, but the confused, the broken, and the messy. If that main idea has something to do with your life right now, Oh man, oh man, y'all. Man, I cannot believe I'm preaching this. I did not know how I had to preach this. Okay, we are going to go into the situation. And so I, I, I read right now, I read Esther 2 verses five to 18, but this passage and this chapter is actually about Esther one through two. So if you guys wanted to take a moment to zone me out just to read Esther one, you can do that. Um, but try not to zone me out too much because I'm explaining Esther 1 as well. So we're going to talk about the situation of the book of Esther. The situation of the book of Esther. Now it's written to be a narrative. We see that the author of this book wants y'all to know that this event actually happened. Circes or Ahasuerus, whatever it is that his name is, all right? That's because it's he has different names based on different languages. It's just all transliterated. So he's a Persian king that rules over media as well. If y'all remember Jonah, what was the city? What was Christian? What was the city that Jonah was called to prophesy to? Nineveh, Nineveh, a key city in Assyria. Media was a part of Assyria's downfall. So this is within a similar time period. It's, it's within the same few centuries of Jonah, um, clearly afterwards, because media is with Persia right now. Persia is past Babylon. So uh, he displayed his, so this guy is a powerful king. He has rule over Persia and media. And he is the specifically a kind of king who has a big ego and a big wallet. He got, he got a big bag full of money, all right? And a big ego. And he uses his wealth to reward those who would remain loyal to his cause and obedient to his command. So where, you know what, when I talked about Nineveh, I said the way that Nineveh proclaimed power and authority over their enemies is fear. For this guy, it was his wealth. The way that he commanded his army, he showed them his money. He showed them his glory and splendor. He said, obey me. And they said, all right. That is where the bag is. That is where my loyalty lies, right? And so that's what, that's what, the basis of his leadership is, is upon. And this guy has a temper. He has a temper. So what happens is, you know, they're about to go to war and 
He drinks for seven days. He gets intoxicated for seven days straight. It's weird to be in a war council and be intoxicated for seven days straight. For some of y'all, that might sound attractive. I say techy. Okay. Don't think like that right now. Turn that part off. He drank for seven days because it was believed during that time that intoxication would put you in closer touch to the spiritual world. It's a different time, y'all. It's a different time. All right. So they were into- he was intoxicated for 24 times seven days because of his job. Because he thought that that would make him closer to the spiritual world. And at the end of seven days, he asked his queen to come, in the ca- to come into the presence of his war council. Why? To display her beauty. Now, y'all might be wondering, huh, you know, I don't really know how I feel about that. And I say me neither because Vashti was, if, if this guy displayed his splendor, and his glory and his wealth, right? To, you know, proclaim to everybody what he can do. The pinnacle of his beauty, the, the pinnacle of his splendor was her beauty with that royal diadem on her head. So this girl was the pinnacle of his wealth. That's why she was queen. And she disobeyed him. She refused to go into the presence of his war council. Now, this was a problem for Ahasuerus because he needed men to uh, obey his commands. But in the palace, his own wife would not be willing. You see, because what he was trying to do, he's trying to say, look at her. She's my girl. Right? But she ain't even listening to him. So he's made a laughingstock in front of his war council. So he gets pissed. I know this is probably the most contemporary way that anybody's ever explained Esther to you, but he gets pissed, okay? And she probably at this point had no idea that this would change her life forever. But in his anger, he demotes her to somebody who cannot enter his presence and the title of queen is stripped from her. So this is the context of Esther, context of Esther, okay? The role of queen is very sexually and politically charged. And the previous queen was deposed for not listening to the king. See, in Persia at this time, the queen was not allowed to enter into the presence of the king unless she was called for. The queen was at his entire beck and call. But when she, ex- when she exposed her autonomy, he tore her status away from her. It's like a bad drama. Y'all know, like, I don't know if y'all have watched, I don't know, some Taiwanese dramas, some Chinese dramas go a little crazy too. But yo, if you guys want to see, like, the extent of tea and dirt on a family, like, from revenge to adultery and everything in between, if that kind of stuff excites you, um, well, I don't don't know why I use the word excite, um, is entertain... Anyway, if that's your genre, you should watch the 2000s Korean dramas because they go crazy, y'all. It's really wild. And this, it's weird to read this context in scripture because it really seems like a bad drama. If you can understand the context of this king, it's like, you know, have you ever gotten into a relationship with somebody who had like anger issues or 
somebody who, I don't know, maybe I, this happens where I come from. This happens all the time. People have reputations that precede them. And sometimes we get into relationships with somebody and all our friends say, no, don't go with this guy or with this girl. Yo, they've done this, 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 and nobody listens to them kind of thing. It's like a weird situation where it's really, really messy. And this king is not the most noble and most gentlemanly of individuals. Okay. Um, not saying that anger issues are a bad thing. Okay. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's something to work through with your community and with the Lord. But in the context of a woman, especially in this context where it's completely patriarchal, completely oppressive, completely misogynistic, where a woman's voice and intention has no sway in her life to be married to a man like as violent and as impulsive as this king is terrifying, really. Um, and that's, that's the context. Now, some of y'all might be wondering, because we have all heard the way I, I'm sure most of us, maybe some of us have not heard, but a lot of us have heard from Sunday school or from cultural references in pop culture. We've heard about Vashti and we've heard about this queen that was deposed. And some of y'all might be wondering why is Vashti's unwillingness to be a trophy woman bad? Why is her unwillingness to be objectified bad? I would say that's not the intention of the author. So if you've ever heard it as like, oh, this queen was bad and Esther is better, that's not, that's not correct. Um, nobody's saying anything about ba Vashti. Like her intentions are not listed. And honestly, modern day feminist interpretations of this book uh, reclaim her a lot. It's like reclaiming Vashti uh, because her autonomy to go against the king to preserve her body is, is shown. Um, and so it's not like there's, some, like there's something deeply wrong with her. Um, and a lot of feminist interpretations reclaim her. And I think it's important not to vilify her. I just think it's not the point. It's just remember, it's, it's important to remember that she is not the point of the book. It's like when we like, it's like getting so caught up in John the Baptist that you miss Jesus. You know what I mean? It's like as much as John the Baptist is a great guy, he's great. His faith is great. Modern day Elijah, New Testament Elijah, that's great. Such a prophet, right? But he's not the point. And so in this case with Vashti as well, she's just not the point of, of this book. Um, and it is clear though that she has some semblance of pride that leads her to to maybe think with some level of foolishness or maybe she expected to be deposed. Nobody knows. Um, but there is some assumption in the language that she did not know that this would happen to her, which is not necessarily totally reasonable considering the context as well. So we do see that at the very least, she was, she was not aware of what her decisions would lead to, um, or she might not have been aware. Um, and so her role in this story just is only there not to say anything about whether or not women should speak up to men. Okay. If, if, if that's, if that's what, you know, some people have taken away that women that speak up are bad. Like that's not it. That's really not it. Okay. That's really not it. That's really taking scripture out of context and dangerous. And maybe you're going against the intention of God. So I don't, I would not go there. There's nothing in the language that points to that, but it is clear that her role is significant because she highlights that decisions have long reaching consequences far beyond what she could have, what she might have been able to foresee. Okay. So we see here that Vashi was not aware 
that her one decision would lead to her whole life changing forever for the rest of her life. And so that's, that's the significance of Vashti and that's the context of Esther. And so this guy, once his anger subsides, it literally says once his anger subsides, which means man's anger had to subside. Um, he re remembers what happened to his queen. Oh, right, I, I stripped her of her title. He goes, hey, we're going to go on a nationwide search for a queen. Now, as preposterous as that might sound, it's important to note that it's just as ridiculous for the context. Um, no other Persian king, this guy's father is Darius. Um, he's going to make an appearance, King Darius is gonna make an appearance in the book of Daniel, which is the next sermon series, God willing, that we are going to do. Um, and uh, Darius chose for himself a woman of nobility. That was the case in Kings. Um, but this guy, he just, I don't know, man. He does what he wants. He's, he has, it's, it's a situation where it was not conventional even for Persia. And it highlights how badly absolute power can be abused by a flawed leader with a big ego. I don't know, is that applicable in today's day and age? I don't know. I don't know. That is up for your personal interpretation, but it shows how just because somebody has absolute power doesn't mean that they make the best decisions. Just because somebody is the head of a state doesn't mean that they are the paragon of morality and virtue, okay? Clearly, when it comes to his queen, he don't give no rips about anything other than this. And that is probably, as a woman, I don't know, you know, what I'm gonna marry a guy like that? I don't know, you know, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so there's this herding of virgins, okay? I'm sorry to put it like that, but it's, <laughs> she needs to be pretty, she needs to be a virgin. That's like it. And so there's a herding of pretty virgins, um, all the pretty, sorry, that's not something I should laugh at. Um, it's so totally misogynistic, but I think it's just so ridiculous that it's just, all you can do is have an inappropriate reaction. Um, so there's this herding of virgins, everyone at the king's personal whims, right? And in enters in Mordecai. This is where, where we read begins, it's clear, I just want to zero in on Mordecai and Esther for a little bit before we zoom out to the rest of the story. So God zooms in on Mordecai. He says, this is a Benjaminite, an exile. He, this guy is an exile. What that means is, is that Mordecai did not choose to live in Persia. He was taken here. He was over, his people were over, like his, his country was overthrown, Israel. We know this. Israel continues to not listen to the prophets and the prophecy unfolds the way God said it would, and both the Northern and Southern kingdom fall. And they become a people in exile. And this is the time of exile. And so Mordecai is a Benjaminite in exile. Okay? So he's taken to Persia past his will. The interesting thing about Mordecai, a little bit of all of a sudden, like there's a little bit of, bit of gene genealogy language. As boring as it is, Always ask your pastor um, or consult commentary 
but also talk to your pastor about when genealogy appears in a book, because when genealogy appears, that's not by chance. That's not God trying to bore you. That's significant. And in this genealogy, what's significant is Kish, the father of Saul, is mentioned. So Saul was a Benjaminite. And I don't, I don't want to make such an over-reference, but I also believe Apostle Paul is a Benjaminite. So we see here, it goes from Saul to Mordecai, okay? And it's interesting, one of the commentaries said that the place where God knocks Saul down seems to be the place where Mordecai is lifted up. And we see here God working through a family to bring glory to himself continuing to redeem that family history as well, um, which is such a blessing, you know, uh, in and of itself. But we, we won't go there. If that touches you, then we can talk about that later. But Mordecai lives in Persia and actually does not reveal his status as Jewish. Why? Because Jews did not have the same rights and privileges as Persians. They were looked down upon because they were a captured people. And it says that Mordecai is the custodian and the guardian of a girl named Hadassah, daughter of Abihail, uncle of Mordecai. This is the only time in the book that Esther's original birth name in her original language is shown. So Esther has one of the only people in scripture that have this, I hope somebody is relating to this. Esther has a Hebrew name and a Persian name. Just like many of us might have a, a name in one language and a name in another, okay? She is given the name Esther by, who, it's not clarified whether it's by Mordecai or it's by her parents before they pass away. But her original name was Hadassah. And she is named, renamed Esther. Esther is most likely the, the Hebrew transliteration of the, the name Ishtar, which is the Babylonian goddess of love. The most secular thing ever, okay? Babylonian goddess of love, Ishtar, Esther. Okay, but her original name is Tadassa. Why is the Hadassah? Why is Hadassah and Esther both mentioned? She has two names. That is the author clarifying her first situation is that she's a young woman trying to live in two different worlds, in two different cultures, in two different expectations, Persian and Jewish. I don't know if you relate to that. For me, this is the first time in scripture that my bicultural identity felt seen. Um, so she has this, these two names as a young woman trying to fit in in Persia and trying to, and caught between two worlds. Because she is, even if it's because of exile, she's a diaspora woman, a part of a diaspora people, a forced immigrant, so to speak. The other thing to note is that she is an orphan. She's picked up by her uncle, whom she respects and follows, but she loses both her parents. And there's not a lot that's mentioned about that here, but it's clear that that is a difficult thing to deal with. Not a lot of her identity is highlighted, but this girl 
has lost not only her, her original culture and heritage, but her parents. And she is making it on her own with her uncle, her custodian. So she gets, she's beautiful and she gets herded in. She catches the favor of, I believe the name is Hegai. Hegai chooses her and seven other women, gives them, gives them their food, gives them their perfume. She pleases the king well in one night and the king falls in love with her. And she goes through a 12 month beautifying process where she is gorgeously, lavishly, and terribly isolated. Never allowed to go back home to her family again. Never allowed to leave the harem again. She's trapped because another guy whom she had no other choice but to have sex with for one night, now wants her. And now she's stuck with this guy. And she has to be alone until he asks for her. Her body, her life, her time has nothing to do with herself no more. And in the midst of all of this, her identity is kept secret. Mordecai forbids her to talk about it. It's just very interesting here because the tension of hiding the Jewish identity is very, very high. Obviously, we will, we will learn more about this next week, but the Jews are being hunted by some key leaders in government, okay? It's dangerous to be a Jew. Not only are you a secondhand citizen, but your life is in danger. She is an oppressed individual in every single way. Her intersectionally, her identity is difficult and oppressed in every single way. And there's no mention of her intention. There's no mention of whether or not she wants to be there. There's no mention of her autonomy. There's no mention of her free will. There's no mention of any of this. There's just no mention of her. Only that she is still trying her stinking best to win the favor of people. There's no mention of whether or not that favor is given to her by God. Only that she's trying her best to fit in and make it. Anyway, she's beautiful. Given all of these things in her identity, she's beautiful. And she pleases the king really well in one night more than all the other virgins. He falls deeply in love with her. He makes her his queen. She asks, she does exactly what she's told to do, follows Haggai's instructions to the T. When the king asks her what she wants, she doesn't ask more than what Haggai says and the king just falls for her. Is this favor God? You really can't tell. God is not mentioned in this book. But she does everything she needs to and she's carried through this process. Now, 
at the end of these 12 months, normally in the, in the case of Vashti, she threw her own banquet, but the king loves her so much. He throws her banquet and then makes that day a holiday, a tax break day for everybody. The man who loves money is like, you know, I have gained so much. Everybody gets a day off. And so we see here the favor. Two things that are really important to be pointed out about Esther. A lot of the times we highlight how Esther was made for such a time as this, and we will talk about that later. We talk about the faith of Esther and her bravery, and we'll talk about that later. But one thing we overlook is her identity. And the reality is that if any of us came across Esther in the church today, it's not clear whether or not Esther would be welcomed in. You see, Esther does not fight to keep Jewish customs like Daniel does, which we'll see in the next sermon series. She does not keep to keep Jewish customs. She does not protest. She does not outwardly show her Jewish witness. She gains favor with Haggai. She does everything what people tell her to do. She is indistinguishable as a Jewish woman in Persia. She willingly... I mean, not, it's, there's no, there's no say, saying anything about her willingness, but she plays her part fully. She is still a woman, like as much as we can say, like this is something that she didn't ask for, blah, blah, blah. We do see here that regardless of why it is for survival or otherwise, Esther does do her best and try to win over the king including have sex with him before marriage. She is hypersexualized as a queen and she's down. Nobody knows that she's Jewish. There's this other element, however, to this side of Esther and it's the passive voice of Esther. No one knows what Esther is thinking. A lot of that is left up to the reader's imagination. Maybe she is desirous, or maybe she has no other choice. Maybe she, was maybe she liked the splendor, or maybe she hated it. I mean, she wasn't raised to be it. She's raised as a Jew. Maybe she wants to climb the social ladder and knows that this is the only way for a woman to do that. Or maybe she's just trying to survive. Regardless of what it is, Esther's uh, intentions are left up to the imagination. A lot of feminist scholars say that this is because this is a man's book written for a man. And so the woman is silenced. I would say while that is not we an not unreasonable, like I would say while that is understandable okay. why somebody would see it that way. Some of you guys might be I personally believe does that Esther's voice all the customs, is not made clear sex, because there are so many husbands, reasons for why how could her uncle send her, right? It's this diminished people hope. People are complicated. And this rejected people. How could her uncle do that to her, right? And you might think um, that that makes her morally questionable. Why don't we turn the AC off? It might be that 
it might be that as a rejected people, she has this diminished, this diminished hope, right? And even the writers and the translators, they all, it's easy for them, everybody to pass judgment on her. And we, as people, we might even judge her. But she, in her orphanness, her diaspora status, her questionable morality, her lying about who she is, she also is deceit, deceiving her husband about who she is as a person. She's masquerading as somebody that she's not. Normally, when people do that, the man leaves them. She has a lot on the line right now. And yet, she is the one that God uses to save his people in this season. The orphan, the exiled, the morally questionable, over-sexualized, willing to be a peg within that system, Esther. Freaking named after the goddess of love. Esther is not a pinnacle of piety. Esther is not a pinnacle of purity. If you've ever heard that, if you've ever heard a conservative congregation being like, you're like an Esther, like a woman of authority, they are not considering who she really is. The point of God using Esther was who she was. And we won't know whether or not she hated or loved this situation. We wouldn't know whether or not she was desirous or she had no other choice. I mean, it's clear she had no other choice, but we wouldn't know whether or not she wanted it or not. But we do know what God is thinking here. How? There's a parenthesis in here. Uh, let me see if I, right. When, it, when the turn came for Esther, parentheses, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her daughter. A whole inter interruption of the story with her identity once again. We see that even when she didn't want her identity to be known, God had not forgotten who she was. God had not forgotten who she really is. Even as she has lost herself about it. Even as she, in her own desire to fit in, is confused, God has not forgotten who he made her to be. This is huge. This is huge. And you know what? If an Esther walked in to a conservative evangelical church context like what we see in New England right now, she might be judged. But she, in her orphanness, her diaspora status, her questionable morality, and her lying, she is the one that God uses to save his people. Does this mean that we can do whatever we want? No, that's not what I'm saying. This is not... It's also important to remember that this is not God necessarily condoning everything she did, right? But what it is, is that God is claiming her as his. Sometimes we live in ways that are questionable. But we forget that God claims us. 
Now, sorry for that really, really <laughs> crazy, you know, and it came, you know, when the alarm starts beeping right at the point, right at the point where the gospel enters in, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, how, what can we apply from this passage? The first thing that we can see is the tension between being in the world and not of the world. We have to remember the line of not letting our assimilation of culture compromise our Christian witness. Even as we are American, even as we are whatever ethnicity we are, white, black, Latino or Latina, Asian American, Native American or indigenous, whatever it is that we may be, South Asian, African descent, which is different from the black community. Um, whatever we might identify with, we ne must never forget that we are Christian first. And even when we forget that, God doesn't forget. You know what I have learned? When you're able to forget the rights that you have because you're that free, that's privilege. And it's only used in the context of race most of the time in the body of Christ. But we must remember that even the fact that we can forget our citizenship in heaven is our privilege as his child. So as much as you are in the world, Remember the fact that you are Christian and own up to it to some degree. It won't, it, it doesn't change. God's love, his seal upon your heart doesn't change depending on what you do or what you choose to take your time with. So acknowledge him. The second thing is that God elevates the broken and he looks out for them. Some of us, we might have lived more privileged lives and we might not have done bad things. Or some of us might have done all the bad things. But that doesn't make anyone less loved, anyone less worthy of being here or not being here. Whether or not you grew up being prodigal or pharisaical, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't judge others. You don't know what God is doing in them. If you are living a life in line with the things that God has commanded, great! But don't look horizontally. It is also possible for the other end to happen. You might be so hyper aware of the sins that you struggle with that you are assuming judgment from other people even though nobody has said a thing. In God's house, none of that matters. You know why? That badge that you wear as beloved was not based on your works. So whether or not you are judging another person for not being as outwardly holy as you, or you are assuming judgment from people for not feeling up to your own expectations of personal holiness, 
Remember that God's actual identity for you is apart from all of your assumptions of others and of yourself. That takes not only repentance, not only grace and mercy, sometimes for some of us that takes humility. The second, the, the third thing is that little decisions have big consequences. We see it in Vashti. She had no idea what was going to happen to her. And yet her little decisions have such big consequences. But we have hope. For Vashti, she didn't know what she was going to do. For Esther, she was living every single day on a tightrope, afraid that this husband that can kill her was going to find out one of the most fundamental things about her, which is that she's Jewish. But Romans 8.28 says, in all things, not in some things, not in the good things, or just the bad things, or just the difficult things, or the easy things, or the comfortable things, or the uncomfortable things. In all things, in all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We see here a very, this is a very Romans-esque book. This is a very Romans 7 to 8 kind of book. The theme is God's unrelenting providence and love for his people. God's elevation of a messy person who is understandably messy, but is messy nonetheless. I mean, she'd been some places. Life is not that neat and tidy. I want to read, it's, a, it's like a bit, it's a thick, bit, but I think this commentary puts it really well, so I just screenshot it and I put it in here. It is easy to look at other people's decisions and size them up, thinking we know clearly what is right from what is wrong, and that if we were in their shoes, we would have both known and done the right thing. We believe God will give us the wisdom to know what to do and the moral strength to do it. It's easy to talk about ethical and moral issues, because in any theoretical situation, we can define the situation simply enough to make the choices clear. But life isn't always that neat and tidy. There comes a day when we find ourselves in a situation where right and wrong are not so clearly defined. And every choice we have seems to be a troubling mixture of good and bad. We pray, believing that God indeed will give us wisdom and the strength to do the right thing. We search the Bible with open hearts, looking for God's will in a situation that perhaps the Bible does not directly address. While we are doing this, the situation continues to develop and either by deliberate action or by default, we have to make decisions ready or not. And in those times of great struggle, the last thing we want is for others to make simplistic moral judgments about us. Has God failed to provide the guidance and wisdom we need? In life's most difficult and complex situations, it may sometimes feel that way. This episode from Esther's Life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from its beginning. 
We are responsible to him for living faithfully in obedience to his word in every situation as we best know how. Even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther's story shows us that we can entrust every episode, whether or not we live it with shame and regret or with a clear conscience and move on. So, if you did not know, Esther is broken. Esther is messy. Even though Esther is Jewish, she doesn't always make the right decisions. Esther is not who you think she is. Some of us freak out about some of the sins that Esther has committed by this point. By the time Esther is married, she is not a virgin. It's actually really quite the contrary. Because she flaunts herself. Esther abandons the outward practices of the law. For an exiled people, what hope do you have? For them, it feels like God left them at that point. Esther all but abandons and feels a lot of shame about the fact that she is Jewish to begin with. Maybe she looked at the other Persians around her and wished she were born that instead. Maybe assimilation was difficult for her. And she did her best in this situation to fit in like everybody else. And she made some really, really questionable decisions along the way. And she is the queen that God uses to save the people of Israel from an empire. I don't know about you guys. So I'm, some of you guys might hear that and I'm like, whoa, right? But for me, I relate. I don't know about to her queen, to her queenship, but I relate to who she is as a person. I am not morally pristine. I am still figuring out, as an individual, I'm still figuring out what is right and what is wrong. And in the midst of trying to figure out what the right thing is to do, I have made questionable decisions. And maybe some of you guys will relate. Maybe some of you guys have shame about some of the things that you might not want anybody to find out about. Here we see one of the messiest leaders in scripture. And one of the most reluctant Jews in the Old Testament. 
And yet, God claims her. God calls her by the name she abandoned. And he loves her. And he calls her to something greater than she could ever. What is it that a Jewish woman becomes the Persian queen? Are you kidding? How the heck does that even happen? Just remember that God loves you and realign your identity to be his first. Don't forget who you are in Christ. This is not a neat situation. And we make the most of what we have. But that doesn't affect whether or not God will be glorified in this worship. That doesn't affect whether or not you have the ability to take away what Esther needs you to take away. And maybe this is the sermon that, 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 that the enemy does not want you to hear. So don't allow yourself to be distracted from the fact that your life does not need to be neat and tidy for God to love you. That perhaps your judgment of morality and what it means to be Christian is not what God thinks. What will you choose? Your own assumption of people and yourself, your own identity, and your own way of looking at yourself in the world about right and wrong, or will you choose God? Will you dare to believe what he says you are? Will you acknowledge him and realign your identity to be his first? Will you be in the world, but not of it? Will you dare to believe that it's not the best things that you have done, but it is the worst things that God will elevate? Remember that it's your story, but you're not the storyteller. And that is our biggest lesson of grace. Could we take this time to pray? Do you relate to Esther? What is your situation? What is your situation? Let's just take this moment to pray. God, I have these things that are in the back of my closet that I don't like to deal with. I make my life look clean and neat and I store up all the things that I don't even wanna look at in there. God, I'm no Pastor Jane. God, I'm no this or that. I'm no visual Christian. God, I've been places and I've done, I've done things even yesterday that I would probably not talk about in church. I don't know the last time I actually paid attention. The last time I actually lived into my convictions. God, I feel so jaded about my faith that I don't even know where to go anymore. 
If that's you, remember that God claims you in that moment, in that part of your life. Some of you guys might be in shame. Like, why do I do, why do I keep doing these things even though I know I shouldn't? Why do I keep having these desires even though I know I shouldn't? Why am I so confused? It is so difficult to be both Christian and be in this world right now. Why is it so hard? Some of you guys might be struggling. And that might be what the enemy does not want you to hear. Well, lock in in prayer. God is working in your life for your good. Your little decisions have big consequences. Consequences that God is using for your good. To fulfill his perfect purpose for you. So face the places that you are broken. What is the la- when is the last time you faced yourself in the, in the eye? The part of you that is shameful. The part of you that you brand as shameful. The part of you that you brand as something I never want to talk to church people about. When was the last time you looked at that in the face with God? When you store it away, it eats at your soul. Remember that it's not your pristine moments that God uses. It is your humanity. Maybe some of us need to pray about the ways that we have judged people. Maybe some of us have got to pray about the ways that we've assumed judgment from people. Like, oh, this person definitely saw what was going on on my Instagram. Oh, they must think. Or this person definitely saw this and that. Like, they must think. It's a child that was a really angry child. And I've had a lot of things assumed about me, but I also assumed a lot of things about a lot of people. Some of us, a lot of our church hurts stem from our assumptions of what people are. Remember that those things don't hold up or hold out to God. Let's take this moment to pray. From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com.